PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. And Eclipse interfaces with programs like Redoc to create a true paperless office. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. We have some responsibility as a moral community. What is our role? What is the profession's role in acute care? That's another way to go that physical therapy treatment doesn't happen in acute care. If it hits home personally, people seem much more willing to step up and take a risk to change the status quo. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, Constrained Physical Therapist Practice and Ethical Case Analysis. Today's discussion is based on a case report from the June 2010 issue of PTJ, which explores how constrained clinical practice creates a moral dilemma for physical therapists. Author Dr. Ernest Nallette is joined by Dr. Gail Jensen and Dr. Beth Smith to explore this complex issue. And now our moderator, Dr. Diane Jetty. Good afternoon. My name is Diane Jetty, and I am on the editorial board of the journal Physical Therapy. And this afternoon, I have the pleasure of being the moderator for our discussion. So welcome to what I anticipate will be a very interesting discussion, the inspiration for which is a paper entitled Constrained Physical Therapist Practice, an Ethical Case Analysis of Recommending Discharge Placement from the Acute Care Setting. It was published in the June issue of Physical Therapy, and the paper describes an ethical analysis of a case representing the decision-making of a physical therapist regarding care of a patient in a setting of constrained care. I have three expert panelists joining me today. Dr. J. Ernest Nallette, Ernie, is the author of the article we will be discussing, and he's an associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Ithaca College. Good afternoon, Ernie. Good afternoon, Diane. I also have Dr. Beth Smith. She is a postdoctoral fellow in the Balance Disorders Lab at Oregon Health and Science University. She's the lead author of a study that was recently published in the May Journal of Physical Therapy entitled Physical Therapists Make Accurate and Appropriate Discharge Recommendations for Patients Who Are Acutely Ill. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. I'm looking forward to an interesting discussion. And finally, I have Dr. Gail Jensen. She's a professor in the Department of Physical Therapy, a faculty associate of the Center for Ethics and Health Policy, and dean of the Graduate School and Associate Vice President for Academic Affairs at Creighton University. She's one of the authors of a paper recently published in Physical Therapy that's entitled Closing the Gap Between Ethics Knowledge and Practice Through Active Engagement, an Applied Model of Physical Therapy Ethics. Welcome, Gail. Thanks, Diane. I'm happy to be here and discuss this case. So the case itself describes an ethical dilemma for Mary, a physical therapist in an acute care facility that briefly poses two moral obligations or what Ernie calls good acts that she seems unable to address simultaneously. One choice she has is to follow the procedure that was established by her department 
and that is she recommended discharge of her patient, Mr. Smith, to an inpatient rehabilitation facility without providing any further physical therapy intervention in the acute care setting. The second choice was to provide the patient with physical therapy services during his acute care stay. She chose option number one, but fears that Mr. Smith has not been fairly treated and that she has added to his suffering in the name of justice. So I'm wondering if you can explain, Ernie, the difference between fairness and justice in this situation, and how can we think about this distinction? I would say that Justice for me usually implies that we're talking about larger populations. So when the case starts, Mary's thinking about the whole population and trying to figure out how to fairly distribute burdens and benefits across the whole population. It's an idea, if you have limited resources, how might you distribute them most equitably? I see fairness more at the individual level whether or not Mary feels she's been fair to Mr. Smith as contrasted with more typically as at a group level. Gail, do you have some thoughts about that? Yeah, we think about justice. We think about how do you allocate resources. This case for me raises the issue that physical therapy is a scarce resource. And so how do you allocate your time, the resources, how do you ration them? She's actually being forced into a rationing decision. Would you agree with that, Ernie? Yes, and I think my observation from both working with my students and my former practice in the clinic is that that's become common practice. And we've been quiet, too quiet about it, and we've gone along and provided less and less service to patients. I think vulnerable populations are particularly at risk for these kinds of rationing decisions. Is there evidence for that? Yes, certainly ethnic and racial minorities, as well as people that are poor, clearly receive less service than others who have similar medical diagnoses. And that, of course, at a a societal level is really something that has to be dealt with at some point. Another question that a case discussion poses, at least for me, is that the care that he was given wasn't reflective of patient-centered care because he asked for more physical therapy and didn't get it. So is it the obligation of healthcare professionals to give patients what they ask for? And doesn't that also then address the issue of people who are more vulnerable may not be knowledgeable enough to ask and therefore they won't get adequate treatment? I was just going to start by trying to clarify the point that in the case, when Mary made her decision, she informed the case manager and then the case manager informed the patient. And that simply is not collaborative care. The PT should have spoken directly to the patient. Maybe things would have been better if the communication directly between the PT and the patient was clear and direct and that Mary was able to listen a little bit better at the beginning of the whole process. Yeah, it seems to me that it goes back to about who makes the decision about skilled physical therapy services, and then how is that decision communicated, like you're saying, as part of the team? 
and I think that's part of Mary's distress here. I suspect she's got this physiological feeling going on. It doesn't quite feel right. I believe we train ourselves and future clinicians on what some people refer to as quote-unquote being objective and leaving feelings aside. And I think in the analysis, it demonstrates that Mary, in fact, got back on the moral track because she did get a feeling of upset. She did feel something was wrong. And for whatever good reason she had, this time she started to address it. I think the emotion of saying that Mr. Smith reminded her of her father was enough to kick up the moral sensitivity. And that's the kind of reaction I find in students, both entry level and post-entry level, when we work on case analyses. If it hits home personally, people seem much more willing to step up and take a risk to change the status quo. Well, one of the things that um, we have a model in acute care, it seems that as physical therapists, we're waiting for someone to tell us that the patient needs physical therapy. So we're waiting for the patient, like Mr. Smith, to say, I need physical therapy, or we're waiting for the nurse on a particular mm-hmm. unit. So do we have a model that kind of inflicts this lack of fairness? Yeah, I I often, I've had many discussions with colleagues about if you could have a physical therapist triage, if you will, every patient who was admitted and have the physical therapist deciding for everyone whether or not they needed PT. But that can be a lot of work. And when you already have limited resources, that may or may not be the best way to have a physical therapist spending their time. I do know some smaller facilities that do that. They track patients that are admitted every day and go and talk to the nurse, see how the patient is doing, talk to the patient. And that's just a part of the way their physical therapists work throughout the day. But you have to have the time to be able to do that and to believe that it is a beneficial model of practice. It seems like it would be a good idea and the physical therapist would be the most appropriate person to make that decision. It certainly could be a timely idea with healthcare reform and the emphasis on team-based care. Mm-hmm. Um, some services will have daily or weekly rounds where the physical therapist and the discharge planner and the occupational therapist and the resident physician, they get together and talk about each patient. And so that way, the physical therapist can listen and advocate for physical therapy or not. But again, that is a dedicated amount of time every day or every week that a physical therapist is talking to multidisciplinary colleagues and not evaluating and treating patients. So if the resources aren't sufficient, does that mean that in that facility only some patients have their needs met? If Mary chooses option two and gets her department to agree that they'll only provide services for the patients that they have the resources to serve, doesn't that mean that some patients don't have their needs met at all? Yes. Not not even a recommendation for discharge? Not even an evaluation. I mean, I think I'm looking at Beth's study, and that showed that when physical therapists' recommendations match what actually happens for patients discharged, the outcomes are better. Well, I think that brings up an interesting question. Another direction that things could go is that physical therapists do a lot of evaluating and not a lot of treatment, and that if you need treatment, you go somewhere else. You go to rehab, you go home, you go to a skilled nursing facility, 
and that's another way to go that physical therapy treatment doesn't happen in acute care. That's a rationing decision that we may make as a profession. It also seems like there's a theme here that we keep bumping up against, and that is what's the role of the physical therapist as a professional in the acute care setting in terms of the overall management of physical therapy care and decision-making about discharge? Are physical therapists frontline in that, or is it a referral? Is it a consultation? Does it come downstream? And if we were first line, would there be better outcomes Would it be more efficient? Would it be more cost-effective? I mean, all those kinds of questions. Because it seemed in this case that the organization has made her decision for her, and I think that's part of her struggle. She's not able to use her own knowledge, and she's pressured to make a decision. Right, Ernie? Is that right? Yes. She's been chronically constrained to the point that she's conspiring in this whole thing because she's accepted those external constraints. And this particular case shook her up and she's trying to morally right herself and if you go downstream with this kind of decision making it could be that the whole system needs to be fundamentally shifted now Gail and Beth you're both talking about fundamentally different ways to approach the problem and I think that's worthy because just nibbling around the edges of this problem we won't fix it And if we don't jump ahead, other people will continue to constrain us and we won't be very effective and therefore very satisfied in the acute care setting. I think there's great work being done in a lot of acute care settings, but people that I talk to are in process of abandoning ship and then get replaced by younglings that then get worn out. Yeah, I agree. I don't know if any of you were at the Rothstein debate in 2007, and the topic of the debate was, are physical therapists necessary in the acute care setting, and what data or what outcomes actually show that? So do we really have a basis for saying that the services are needed? How do we really know that? There's lack of evidence to the positive and lack of evidence to the negative. I think, Beth, your work is is pointing in that direction of how do we deal with these situations. Right. And from a research perspective, those are difficult questions to answer to show that people have better outcomes when they have physical therapy intervention because there's not a control group. The people in the hospital who are not getting physical therapy are typically healthier and doing better and have better outcomes anyway. So it becomes very difficult to really show that we're being effective in the acute care setting. I think we are, but it's hard to show that with research and evidence. This just isn't an individual conversation about the individual therapist, but the profession, we have some responsibility as a moral community. What is our role? What is the profession's role in acute care? Right, and I think Ernie's right. If we don't decide this as a profession for ourselves, then it will be decided for us by other people. That's right. And I think that could be coming fast depending on where the nation goes in healthcare reform. It appears to me, uh, I don't mean this as a political (laughs) announcement or anything, it seems to me that right now healthcare is considered to be too expensive in this country without much understanding of what that phrase means. So I anticipate there are going to be more cuts, significantly so, in the next decade, 
And if we, at least the APTA, can't direct some of those changes, they're not going to serve our patients very well. I'm thinking particularly if some of the healthcare reform ends in bundled services, where will that then leave us in terms of the care for our patients? Because that would bundle the payment for services through the continuum of care. And I'm wondering if that would then constrain further physical therapy post-acute care. I think even though this case points at one end of the continuum, the need for care and care is not being delivered, that we also have the overutilization issue too, which I think is an issue where therapists have to really come forward in their professional duty. And it goes back to the distributive justice issue that if you're overutilizing services in the system, it actually is harming the larger system. And decisions about when to stop services are as important as decisions about when PT service is appropriate. Yeah, and I think that was an interesting moment when I joined the APTA Ethics and Judicial Committee because when I came on to the committee, the code talked about avoiding overutilization because at that time, predominantly, it was fee-for-service. When the revision, not this most recent one, but the one back in 2000, when we put that revision out, we added to not underutilize because by then the pressure was being put on therapists to do less and less. Well, I have a question for Ernie. Ernie, what kind of advice would you give Mary, the therapist here? Uh, You've taken this case through this process, uh, Nash's framework, but what should the average therapist be bringing to their reasoning and decision-making process from this kind of approach that you're advocating in this case analysis? Well, I've thought an awful lot about this, and I've struggled for years now trying to teach this. And I guess the first thing I would want to know from Mary, and I think doing the case gives me a sense of this, of who is she first and foremost as a moral person. And my primary interest would be for her to continually ask herself the question, am I being a compassionate person in this situation? And if I am, what am I called to do in this individual case? In this individual case, I think her calling is to listen more carefully to Mr. Smith, respect his needs, and have the courage if she says, this is not a needed service, or this, even worse, this might be a harmful service, and I'm not going to participate in it in that manner. I just personally have become more and more comfortable over the years with a virtue ethics approach. And I've been saying to people, here are virtues, pick one, and let's work on implementing it. And it seems like a more direct, less complicated way to work through that process. So are there some fundamental questions for a therapist to ask him or herself when it comes to this kind of decision-making, something that is easily remembered and feels right? Well, I'll throw out this concept of thinking about yourself as one of the moral agents and that in being an agent, it means that you are going to take an action, a deliberate action that makes a difference in the outcome so that you have a hand in the outcome. And that puts you right in the center of your moral compass versus to think that it's not your decision or you don't have to take an action, that you're complicit. And if you're silent, that in itself is an action. 
So, Gail, what's the question that the clinician... Well, I, I think the question is to ask yourself, how are you a moral agent working with this patient? What is your role and what action are you going to take that's going to contribute to a good outcome here? Well, thank you, everyone, for a lively conversation this afternoon. I think we went well beyond the case, but it was a very excellent base for our discussion and demonstrates the kinds of hard decisions that a clinician has to make today in a system that is constrained. Clinicians do, in fact, need some questions that they can ask themselves when they begin to feel uncomfortable about the role that they may be playing within that healthcare system and how it affects the patients that they help toward wellness. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net.